where did the FBI go awry? <laughs> it is a bit of a trick question because there is an answer, and the answer, as is often the case, is in the Constitution. There is no place for a federal police force in the United States Constitution. Our founders probably understood that the direction that it would take uh, if we did do so. It's also why there's no standing army. Let's just look at some recent examples before we go back and look at the history of the FBI and ways in which it has always been problematized by its politicized character. Though the nature of it has expanded and extended and has gone to a scale and a scope we have never witnessed before. Uh, beginning with the election or just the campaign of President Trump. Take, for example, the January 6th Proud Boys trial taking place currently in the District of Columbia. In that case, there has been multiple documentation of the role of informants, infiltrators, and instigators in the events of January 6th. Uh, I was there on January 6th. I decided not to take the unauthorized tour of the Capitol. Uh, I was instead sitting in, in the offices of some uh, Trump cabinet officials as we ultimately watched it unfold. I was there at the uh, behest of President Trump after representing him in Georgia and challenging what was taking place in the election. I would note that uh, President, uh, President Trump only filed one election contest himself that he was able to legally, and that took place in Georgia. Of note, the court somehow, met, even though the court was required to conduct a hearing within five days of its filing, on January 6th, the Georgia courts had still just not got around weeks after its filing to ever hearing the case. Indeed, they wouldn't uh, decide to hear it until after January 6th came and went. In fact, there was never an evidentiary hearing on the election contest President Trump filed in Georgia. It was amidst that frustration and agitation that people gathered that day on January 6th uh, to hear the president speak and as the president asked them to do to peacefully protest outside the Capitol to make sure that our Constitution's framework for adjudicating election disputes and controversies, which by the way, uh, despite what Vice President Mike Pence would have some people believe, uh, both Vice President John Adams and Vice President Thomas Jefferson had exercised their constitutional authority to decide electoral contests going back to the very founding of our country. And then people got wind as they were outside the Capitol that that was not going to occur. Uh, Pence made the peculiar decision to wait to release his decision until right at the beginning of that presentation, which helped put certain things into motion. But things were already in motion. Uh, there was an unusual lack of law enforcement present that day. The Capitol is the most secure building in the world, particularly on January 6th. Uh, there are over 2,500 people that are just police officers of the Capitol. Once again, we may be seeing part of our problem. Why does the Capitol even have a police? If they had had regular local police, uh, there's the issue of District of Columbia having its own control, and that being a separate and secondary question. But if it had had regular police not under political control, maybe they would have been properly present that day and there never would have been any issues. Uh, because what happened was there was an unusual lack of security in some parts of the Capitol, number one. Number, and number two, there were other members of the police that were actually guiding protesters into a compressed area where they would then be attacked 
by members of the Capitol Police, that that would lead to people reacting and responding, and only the people that reacted and responded were caught on camera, broadcast to the world, or ultimately prosecuted. The Capitol Police who initiated and instigated that conflict uh, took a complete walk from any accountability and responsibility. Uh, then you had other Capitol Police that were escorting people into the building that day, while other Capitol Police were attacking them in other parts of the building. So, you know, the, if you had just stumbled into it, you didn't know what was happening. Uh, it was still one of the most unusual Capitol riots in American history, and there have been plenty of Capitol riots uh, through our history, through the history around the world. You can watch the protests currently taking place in France to see what real riots look like. Uh, they usually involve, you know, either farmers dumping food or manure, depending on their choice that day on the public streets, or people raiding into buildings or, or protesting BLM style, as took place in the summer of 2020, just a few months before those protests. While the people that did those BLM protests, including threatening to burn down St. John's, the great historic church across from the White House, uh, not only did they not get criminally prosecuted, many of them actually got checks written from the federal government uh, for the wrongful harassment they suffered for simply policing that, organ, uh, that building that day. Uh, meanwhile, people who took that unauthorized tour of the Capitol and had to be some of the most peaceful rioters in the history of rioting. These are people that literally stayed between the lines half the time as they're walking through the Capitol. These are people who didn't steal any art. The only thing that got taken was a, uh, a, a now famously memed event, someone who uh, took the little, the little pedestal and Pelosi's with him. There was a, a gentleman who put his feet up on Pelosi's desk. What's undisclosed is what came out at his trial. It was the media asking him to put his feet on Pelosi's desk. The, uh, these are people who just came in, often directed to do there. There were people around, people like Mr. Epps, Apparently Rupert Murdoch doesn't want people talking about Mr. Epps because Tucker Carlson, the most popular TV news host in the modern age, had to resign yesterday or was separated from his employment for talking about what, according to the LA Times and the New York Times, for talking about Ray Epps. This was the very unusual case of the man who got a 60 Minutes profile while bragging in text to his kid about how he helped organize January 6th into an event that could lead to people being criminally prosecuted and punished, while he himself has never been criminally prosecuted and punished. He's not the only one. They have found in the Proud Boys trial a friend of mine, a colleague, Norm Pattis, is one of the defense lawyers, by the way, an old school Robert Kennedy style Democratic liberal uh, who's defending the, some of the Proud Boys, including Joe Biggs in that trial, has found more evidence of government misconduct and malfeasance and misfeasance than in any case he's ever been a part of, and he's had the privilege of being a part of, unfortunately, too many in our legal system, going on decades of representation. Uh, you can recognize Norm as an old civil rights lefty because he still has a ponytail like that's still popular as if it was the 1960s. The, in that case, what they found is uh, they're now approaching over 100 informants, infiltrators, and instigators that day. People that were on the government payroll who were the ones directing people to go into the building, directing the people to confront the Capitol Police, directing people to try to take things once they were inside the building, directing people to be confrontational. Uh, the, and that is just one aspect of the degree to which January 6th was very much a Fed surrection, not an insurrection. 
In other aspects, you can go into the QAnon movement and oddities about that movement in terms of who, who and what Q actually was. I remember a few months before the election saying that I had deep suspicions of the QAnon movement because it read and felt like an attempt to incorporate artificial intelligence into the ultimate informant, infiltrator, instigator kind of event. That for years, law enforcement has struggled to infiltrate various political groups to try to cause them to do counterproductive things. This is what, in fact, COINTELPRO was all about. Uh, that will take us back to the Federal Bureau of Investigations program to infiltrate various civil rights organizations, anti-war organizations, other organizations associated with mostly the political left, but not always. Uh, they also went at the John Birch Society. They also went at various organizations on the right that were known for questioning and being skeptical of institutional narratives as to matters of war and other civil rights and civil liberties issues that the uh, goal was to be able to infiltrate them without requiring an individual do so. Uh, that it, is it really a coincidence that what we saw in Michigan involving the, you know, the attempts to rescue Governor Whitmer's political career, successfully ultimately, by staging a fake kidnapping that was basically just some nerds hanging out in their basements that had no idea about anything, didn't know how to do anything, and it turns out that two-thirds of the people involved were all federal agents, that they were the ones who originated the idea, they were the ones who came up with it. When they got an honest trial, many of them were acquitted, uh, the judge made sure they didn't get an honest trial the second time around. The, while, other, while some of the FBI and agents involved in that case were ultimately uh, found involved in getting into fights over swinger parties, to give you an idea for the moral values of that Federal Bureau of Investigation office, the person who helped run the fake kidnapping, fake insurrection Michigan effort had previously been uh, tried to get the Michigan militia-aligned groups to stage such an event at the Michigan State Capitol during the COVID protest and the lockdown protest. Where do you think that person ended up a few weeks before January 6th? Ended up in Washington, D.C., and ended up being one of the lead FBI agents in charge of the January 6th cases. Is that a uh, complete coincidence that the person who helped organize and orchestrate the Whitmer entrapment plot ends up being integral to the January 6th activities. The uh, U.S. prosecutors and the, federal, and the media and federal judges, sadly, have all been complicit at trying to suppress this information. Uh, and despite their efforts, the Proud Boy defense lawyers have documented more and more and more of all the people on the federal payroll. And that doesn't even get to QAnon, which was trying to convince people leading up to January 6th that, the, that there were white hats in the FBI and in the Justice Department and in the intelligence operations and in the military that wanted them to take drastic action that day, that they were actually agents of the government if they went in and took dramatic action that day. Uh, was that not also itself potentially part of a broader uh, attempt by people within the FBI at the seventh floor level to get people to take it counterproductive action to discredit them and discredit the election challenge. I remember being there the day before, talking to Trump's lawyers, meeting with members of Congress, and I was curious, I was like, uh, the National Guard was all over the place, by the way, but then would, at the request of the D.C. mayor and uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi, disappear, despite Trump's request on the day of January 6th. Uh, so the National Guard was not present, even though Trump had asked them to be there. Had they had the regular Capitol Police presence or 
uh, the regular uh, guard presence that had been requested by the president, January 6th never happens, uh, despite all the infiltrators, instigators, and informants' presence and attempts to provoke. Ray Epps is there the day before trying to provoke people, and people are spotting him for the provocateur that he is. But I was curious, how did Mitch McConnell, how did Nancy Pelosi have such confidence that there was going to be no meaningful vote, no meaningful debate on the electoral contest challenge, given the constitutional history that supported it? Senator Cruz, Senator Paul, and others were getting together in an effort to create an 18 uh, 86 style commission, I'm sorry, 1876 style commission to look at what happened in Georgia, what happened in Arizona, what happened in Nevada, what happened in Wisconsin, what happened in Michigan, what happened in Pennsylvania, which was, as the Wisconsin Supreme Court would later confirm, a lot of illegal ballots were included in the presidential count that should not have been. Uh, and the, 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 there were people who voted who weren't constitutionally qualified to vote. There were people whose votes were cast in a manner that wasn't constitutionally qualified. And the vote was counted and canvassed in a way that wasn't constitutionally qualified because the Constitution requires that the rules be established by the legislature of the state, not by secret court orders, not by behind-the-scenes uh, executive officials, not by Mark Elias cutting a deal with some corrupt person, not Zuckerberg buying off a local election office, none of that. All of those were legitimate issues, and yet they were incredibly confident that somehow they were never going to really see the light of day, that they were going to be demonized in some way. Uh, and Matt, is it really a coincidence that then January 6th develops the way that it does? Now that we know about the informants and infiltrators and instigators, why did the FBI and the Justice Department suddenly lose all interest in Hugh Q and Hugh and what? QAnon really was, what Q really was. There was an obsession about it leading up to the election and all of a sudden a complete lack of interest as if they didn't want the world to dig deeper and to see what might, lack, what might be behind that. Whether it was in fact a government AI designed program to try to create uh, COINTELPRO all over again. And there it's important to know our history of the FBI. The, as I tell, you know, it used to be my friends on the left who knew the problematic history of the FBI. Uh, unfortunately, my friends on the right have got a crash course in the political nature of the FBI in the Trump era. But in reality, it goes all the way back to the beginning, when J. Edgar Hoover had the idea to convert the Bureau of Investigation under the Department of Justice into a separate independent organization. There were some good instincts in there to professionalize the organization in ways that met high standards of gathering forensic evidence. And there were some less than good instincts in there, uh, including weaponizing it for political dissidents as convenient, whether it started with the Palmer raids, uh, using the fear of communism to justify targeting labor union groups and other dissident activists. But there's no better example when people tell me, ah, there's no way January 6th could have been some organized, orchestrated effort at any level, at any part of the government, uh, because they're not capable of pulling something like that off. That was just a spontaneous riot, uh, or maybe a planned riot by a few bad faith actors, and maybe there were a few people playing both sides of the street, but that's all that was going on. This was people who got out of hand, and that's all that took place. We should never suspect the Federal Bureau of Investigation of being involved at any level, despite the fact we now know dozens of their people on their payroll, directly or indirectly, were there informing and instigating that event. Uh, those are people who do not know, unfortunately, the history of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, or a particular organization known as COINTELPRO. 
The same uh, recently fired or demoted or separated news host recently talked about a particular way in which this COINTELPRO program worked. Because the founder and director of the program, uh, the person really organizing and orchestrating it, the person who thought he was going to become FBI director when J. Edgar Hoover died, was a man by the name of Mark Felt. But you may have known him better as, so, as the so-called deep throat behind the Watergate uh, investigation and the Bob Woodward uh, expose. I remember years ago sitting in the, with the Washington Post with Ben Bradley, who was then edit the then editor-in-chief, and I asked him, I said, what if the real reason you're keeping Deep Throat a secret isn't because it's some noble example of whistleblowing, but instead was part of an inside operation of a de facto coup against an elected president of the United States? Uh, and he just smirked and didn't say anything further. Of course, years later, we would find out that that's who Deep Throat was. Deep Throat was the deep state writ large, personified. This is a man who ran COINTELPRO. And if you understood COINTELPRO's history, nothing about January 6th would end up being that big of a surprise. COINTELPRO was designed, and you can go through the, its templates of operation and organization, and you can see its fingerprints on the so-called Whitmer kidnapping plot or the January 6th activities from a mile away. The, and so how did the FBI get to a place where it saw its role as being America's secret police? where it saw its role as being America's equal to the KGB or the Stasi. Uh, it's because the, uh, the, the, the seeds of its demise were planted in its very origin and founding. Because J. Edgar Hoover used the Palmer raids and used organizations involving anarchistic activity, by the way, some of which somehow managed to never get caught, uh, always raising questions in the history books. How did this group of anarchistic terrorists manage to bomb Wall Street, bomb the Attorney General, send bombs to other people, and nobody ever get, none of them ever get caught at all, and it be so easily and conveniently used to expand the power of federal police that our founders in the Constitution never called for and never authorized and never empowered? The, uh, it's, it would ultimately manifest again in the COINTELPRO efforts that targeted the Black Panthers, targeted anti-war groups, targeted civil rights groups, and it kept going and going and going. Uh, until you know, a few folks, a few college students at, uh, in Pennsylvania decided to take a sneak peek at the, uh, at the files, because back then you could find them in physical form in media Pennsylvania. And when they tried to disclose them to the world, even Senator McGovern, the anti-war critic, didn't want to publish them to anybody. Uh, was just as terrified as of the recent as the recent Ukraine uh, leaks, class, supposedly from an individual uh, from a gaming board. Uh, we'll see whether that's the real source of, of what of who had leaked it. But there was this extraordinary lack of interest in the mainstream media of actually publishing or in the mainstream political sector of publishing this information. Instead, there was more interest in trying to track down who did it and why they did it rather than is the information true and has our government been lying to us. This part of this continuous pattern of using the Federal Bureau of Investigation to target outsiders, to target dissidents, uh, to, uh, to illicitly inform and infiltrate their organizations to divert their activities to counterproductive paths uh, is as old as the FBI itself, unfortunately. What changed with, the, uh, with President Trump, and to some degree it had been changing slowly but steadily all the way through, 
There was the, uh, the cover-up efforts on Aldrich Ames. They attempted to blame everybody but Aldrich Ames. They attempted to blame everybody but some of the other people that they caught up uh, spying illegally for the, uh, uh, for the Soviet Union during the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, they managed to uh, not, never find any real crime involving the Clintons, which takes extraordinary effort. <laughs> the, uh, and, but it really culminated uh, with the 2016 election. First, with the cover-up efforts that they took for the Hillary Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton. Because it wasn't just a matter of choosing not to prosecute Hillary Clinton for deciding to have uh, illicit information, uh, classified information, other information on secret servers that would never be subject to the Freedom of Information Act, but would allow her to weaponize her power at the State Department and her husband's role at the Clinton Foundation to enrich their political machine and uh, punish their political adversaries, which is what that was really about. It wasn't just stupid emails, as some people tried to pretend. It was what those emails revealed and reflected. Uh, but it was also how the FBI handled that case. And I had seen it many times because I had handled a lot of politically oriented cases, uh, represented people all across the political spectrum. I used to joke that there's, uh, it's guaranteed you dislike someone I've represented because they dislike one another. Uh, and so in that context, had seen these protocols and template of operation uh, but it had usually been reserved for the true outsiders, their political dissidents. Your libertarians, your Green Party folks, your labor union, your small labor union folks, your uh, uh, people on the independent right, so-called militia folks, so-called tax protester. That was the groups that they mostly weaponized the process for politicized purposes. And I got to see the modus of operandi of how they operated. What was unique to, was to see them use it to be, on the behest and the behalf of the Clintons because they not only gave her a green light, but they made it impossible for them to be prosecuted at any point in the future. Rather than going in and flipping witnesses that could testify adversely to Hillary Clinton, they went in and gave those witnesses immunity deals that guaranteed they could never be threatened with prosecution to be forced to testify uh, against Hillary Clinton. They basically retro-designed it so that nobody could ever go after Hillary Clinton for what she did related to those activities. Then that same Federal Bureau of Investigation, as I talked with Carter Page in London some years ago at a cigar shop when he was still talking quietly and explaining to me what took place was something like out of a Jean Le Carre book or, or novel uh, like The Constant Gardener or Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, as he explained what had happened to him just an ordinary guy uh, who was interested in global economics, who had an alternative view of American foreign policy that could uh, develop a, a relationship with Russia that was less antagonistic to convert Russia into an ally rather than an adversary as we dealt with issues related to China and its activities in the South China Seas and the Road Belt Initiative and its social credit score system and everything else that's abhorrent to uh, most American values if they try to export those values around the world. The, uh, he joined the Trump campaign to help out and to do what he could. And then he was suddenly invited to a range of events, parties, get-togethers with people he thought had a scholastic interest in who he was, not knowing that the entire time he was being set up, that in fact his prior, uh, he had previously worked for the FBI secretly uh, uh, to expose corrupt Russian actors, 
All of that was then used against him. These meetings at these parties, at these get-togethers where they faked what took place, the fact that he'd previously been an informant against the Russians on behalf of the FBI, was then flipped uh, into false statements by lawyers to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Activity, the FISA courts, courts that only exist because of how much egregious misconduct was taking place in the, uh, in the 70s that the church committee exposed, that this committee was supposed to use the court system, the FISA court system, to stop from reoccurring, instead becomes the very means and tools of illicitly spying on the entire Trump campaign. Because the way a FISA search warrant works is you never have to disclose it to anybody but the court itself. The other side never knows. And you can get to spy on people not only proactively, but retroactively. Because our database systems at the National Security Agency are gathering all communications in live time and storing them for searchable format by name, by identity, by topic, by term, by language, by lingo. Uh, and a FISA warrant allows you to go all the way back and search a bunch of information, as well as to go within six hops of the individual so that you could, from one person, spy on his entire network of people. And they used the Carter Page warrant to go after the president. They didn't stop there, of course. Uh, then the Mueller committee is formed when Trump figures out the scale of what was taking place after he got in. He has to fire James Comey in secret. Uh, you know, the, I know that there are some people recently talking about how easy it would be to fire the FBI director. Look at what Trump had to go through just to try to get James Comey fired. You know, he had to make sure he was out of the building, have his own private security guy deliver the letter. Um, and what happened after he fired him? They opened up the Mueller investigation and put his entire family under criminal investigation for the last year, year and a half. If Trump has proven anything, he's got to be the most innocent New York real estate construction developer in the history of the city of New York. But uh, what they don't know, uh, so a lot of people don't know about the craziness of the Mueller inquiry, the attempt to extort and blackmail the president into not uh, cutting a deal with Russia that could have put us on more advantageous terms, convert an adversary into an ally, and dealing with a rising China. Now Russia's buddy-buddy with China on a daily basis because of the Biden administration's reversal of those policies. But uh, is the General Flynn investigation was the beginning as well in many respects. So uh, what happened with General Flynn, I ended up representing people close to General Flynn uh, at high-ranking positions within the uh, military establishment. And there's parts of that story that people still don't know of how the Mueller inquiry and the Flynn investigation overlapped to try to protect the deep state from its adversaries within the government. So when General Flynn came in, there was already efforts afoot to try to set him up, to try to entrap him. Uh, much as they had done to Carter Page to try to create the illicit spying on Trump in the first place, as much as they did with the Whitmer entrapment, much as they did with the same entrapment uh, methods and modus operandi that exist with January 6th as detailed and documented in the Proud Boys trials taking place right now in the District of Columbia, a place where it's about as possible to get a fair trial as it would have been for Martin Luther King in rural Alabama in 1955. Indeed, I would say Martin Luther King could have got a much fairer trial uh, from an all-white jury in rural Alabama in 1955 than anybody uh, can that's considered political in the District of Columbia today. But in that capacity, in that context uh, of what took place and transpired in the Flynn inquiry, it wasn't just about Flynn. They waited for Flynn to not only get the national security position before launching their entrapment efforts, 
uh, to get him out. They waited for him to identify all the white hats in the entire military establishment. So he was putting together a list of people to promote, a list of people to put on key committees, a list of people to put in key positions of power. And once they had that list is when they went out and first took out Flint. Then they used the, the pretext of Comey's firing to have Mueller open an inquiry. And Mueller's people, at, if anybody has any doubts about how political Andrew Weissman is, just follow him on social media today. They should be disabused of any of that illusion. Uh, he's, his corruption goes all the way back to the Enron days. Uh, for crimes that maybe Enron isn't the one that was really responsible for. Uh, but that's another story for another day. The, uh, but what took place is they went to every single one of those people on Mueller's list and basically told them that as, as long as they did not step up, as long as they did not step into a higher role, as long as they were not active, as long as they in some cases chose to resign, then they would not be put under further criminal investigation but that if they did anything else otherwise, if they actually acted on Flynn's recommendations to assert their power in a particular role or to seek or obtain higher promoted power, then they would be subject to the same macro, micro scale federal criminal investigation that they were putting General Flynn and his family through. This was the scale. This was a degree of Berea style politicization, weaponization, uh, for political partisan purposes of our federal law enforcement as has ever occurred. They took what used to be reserved for uh, dissidents and outsiders and third party groups, your Eugene V. Debs, people forget, got locked up even though as a, he'd been a presidential candidate and was again a presidential candidate despite being locked up, which is why, by the way, the legal precedent is already established that even if they did something crazy and tried to lock up President Trump, they can't keep him off the ballot constitutionally. But it was reserved to those people, the Congressman Victor Berger. Uh, you know, Debs was in prison, federal prison in America, for just giving a speech uh, against World War I, uh, a World War I that produced arguably the rise of fascism, communism, totalitarianism, and World War II. The, uh, so he you know, might have had some points that were accurate in that regard. But, the, but that's who it had been reserved for, COINTELPRO, uh, whether it was the, the assassination of Fred Hampton in the south side of Chicago, uh, whether it was the range of events that were later identified, the assassination of Malcolm X was tied to people that were on the COINTELPRO pay payroll, probably not coincidentally. Uh, might have been an alignment of convenient interest, but it might have gone further than that, might have been worse than that. They took all of those tools, all of those techniques, uh, some of the ones they had used against drug dealers in the 1990s. I remember telling my friends on the right, that this political weaponization of being able to freeze people's assets, deny people access to legal counsel, lock people up uh, without proof that they are a threat to flee or without conviction of a crime by the misuse and abuse of bail power, that these powers were ultimately going to come back home to roost uh, for everybody who they later decide is a enemy of the state. And that is what has effectively happened during the Trump administration and afterwards was his own Federal Bureau of Investigation was using all of its political and legal authority and power, its ability to spy, its ability to invade your privacy, its ability to weaponize its criminal investigative authorities, its ability to, to misuse and abuse the grand jury thanks to a bad Supreme Court decision, United States v. Williams, that basically defamed uh, the power of grand juries from their independent role that our founders anticipated and demanded that they have, 
that all of that together was done in such a way that you, we have what is truly a deep state running American policy around the globe. That the, whenever Trump uh, went along with some agenda that uh, the generals like Milley wanted him to do, then you would see Mueller back off. When he challenged something that the uh, foreign policy establishment believed in, all of a sudden they would escalate and accelerate their activities, target his son, target his daughter. Uh, I mean, that was the degree of viciousness that took place here. And its dangers were always there. It's just now there for all of us to see and witness in live time. And the, uh, the answer, people say, well, what's the answer to this problem, this political weaponization of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, of the, the seventh floor, of the hierarchy of the Department of Justice? Because there's plenty of everyday agents, everyday prosecutors, everyday lawyers, everyday spies at the CIA at the ground level. Uh, that do good work and they're good people. But the people at the top are, have politically corrupted those agencies beyond compare. When, whether it's an IRS whistleblower steps forward and talks about how the Biden tax corruption, one of the most obvious tax crimes since Michael Avenatti uh, to be running around, uh, is not being investigated because of it. it. It gives you an idea of the scale of it, that they have to go outside of the system to disclose how bad the hierarchy has become. So what is the answer? Well, the answer is what, uh, once again, whenever we often want an answer to governance of our society, of our country, of our nation at the federal level, we can often turn to the same elegant, carefully, gracefully drafted, crafted document by our founders. The Constitution provided the answer to the FBI, which is there doesn't need to be an FBI. There doesn't need to be a federal police. The answer is to return our Constitution to its roots, to return our country to its constitutional roots. And in so doing, constitutional governance is always the answer to rogue agencies, rogue bureaucrats, and rogue officials. And hopefully that is the path we will continue to pursue as we have witnessed in live time the danger of li licensing these agencies with the kind of lawless power they have wielded over so many people over the past half decade, but have in fact been infected with from its very inception. Now I'm gonna uh, open up for questions so anybody can ask anything they want to allow a maximum participation. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, ma'am. the January 6th people still rotting and dying in prison. What gets me is no one is doing anything about it. I don't hear Cruz or anybody getting on TV and demanding this. What, are they part of this? The, I mean, and this is, goes back to losing our constitutional bearing on the question of bail. And here's where occasionally, you know, some conservative friends of mine have disagreed over the years. But I've already, you look at the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution, the right to a surety, which, back, by the way, back in the day meant somebody else would be in your place. Someone else would step forward and say, if they don't show up and for their trial or they don't show up for their sentencing, I will uh, do their sentence for them. That's how the old surety system used to work. And the belief in bail was that if, if it suffices to accuse, then what comes of the innocent? And so the point was we only trusted a jury uh, to actually decide guilt. And we only uh, trusted a grand jury in the federal system to decide whether there's even probable cause to initiate a criminal prosecution. 
Both of those protections have been effectively removed by the de facto denial of bail in a meaningful Eighth Amendment rights. Uh, to give, so the, I mean, the bail history is that other than capital crimes, uh, that, that basically you were always granted bail unless they could prove that they could not secure your appearance at trial but for detaining you pending trial. Denial of bail was very rare through most of America's founder, founding history and for over a century into its legal history. Indeed, the modern form of bail that is locking up the people in January 6th doesn't, only dates to the Bail Reform Act of 1984 to give you an idea for, for how bail has gone off the tracks constitutionally. And what the Bail Reform Act of 1984 established was a different standard. It allowed the, now what was supposed to happen was it was supposed to allow defendants to not, to be able to testify without waiving their right, their Fifth Amendment rights to testify for bail without having to waive their rights to testify at trial or having that information used against them at trial. It's supposed to allow the efforts of what's called proffers, where you can proffer what you could prove if afforded a meaningful evidentiary hearing. Instead, that's been flipped to where the prosecutors get to make any claim they want without presenting any evidence at all. The legal constitutional standard is supposed to be that there's clear and convincing evidence that there's no means whatsoever to secure your presence at trial other than imprisonment in order to allow imprisonment pending trial. However, uh, look at it from a federal judge's perspective. If uh, the, while the legal standard says you're going to have to have proof that unless you lock them up, there's a 75% chance they don't show up. All the empirical evidence shows that when the courts have released people against the government's request, the probability they, are not, they don't show up for trial is less than 1%, putting aside immigration cases, which are a whole different animal, uh, where they have a different standard. Shock, shock. Um, in the, it, the, yet what happens with a judge is the judge sits there and thinks, what if this is the one that flees? I'm going to get all the political heat. So what happens is they have to be convinced that there's almost no chance you could flee or would flee before they allow you to get the bail, your Eighth Amendment right to bail. This Bail Reform Act of 1984 was only upheld over a 5-4 vote. It was upheld by a fake case. What I mean by a fake case, I mean the U.S. government, the person appealing the case uh, had already mooted the issues and so he didn't care about whether he won before the US Supreme Court. So you only had one side really making advocacy, very much like the Connie Buck case where her so-called lawyer was actually on the other side. And so what's happened is they've, and then they used the drug cases to further dilute bail. Uh, I mean, where's the idea that they can seize your property without any trial at all? Well, they started doing that in drug cases. They're like, oh, we can't let these drug defendants get good lawyers, so we have to seize all their money. And most people are like, oh, okay, we don't like drug defendants. We don't like drug lords running around. We don't like drug lords released. Well, they use the law they established in those cases to turn around and use it against the January 6th defendants. And this is why I always say the Constitution requires one standard. Uh, and, and even if we don't like the political outcome, I'll give an example. I was very publicly outspoken in support of bail for both Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. Why? Because I believe that we have to apply the bail standard consistently, that there were means that they could have, through house arrest and the rest, secured uh, their appearance for trial. And as be ultimately became the case with Jeffrey Epstein, I was concerned about a potential mysterious death while they were in custody. Uh, as with, you know, uh, you know Jeffrey Epstein, uh, the eternal truth, number one, didn't kill himself. The, 
Uh, so this is why we need bail, and we need constitutionally robust bail. Now, not a lot of what the left is proposing, uh, which is to have, you know, give bail to people that have committed serious crimes on very easy terms and then deny bail to their political critics uh, on very difficult terms. But there is simply no basis whatsoever in the factual record for anybody to be detained in the January 6th cases. It is a patent, clear violation of the Eighth Amendment that, these, that they have been detained. The fact that some have been detained for more than two years, some have been imprisoned longer than they, could, than they are actually facing at trial and realistic sentencing risk. Uh, this is a constitutional outrage, and if our Supreme Court wasn't too busy worrying about what people think at the cocktail party or whether somebody's going to protest them next week, uh, they would step into the gap uh, and make a real difference. And hopefully they ultimately will. The January 6th cases, they're also using those cases, just like the Trump case, to politically weaponize everything. Uh, if, you know, the, how was Eugene V. Debs locked up? He was locked up misusing the sedition laws. The sedition laws were meant for somebody sabotaging our military. That's what the sedition laws are there. The sedition laws are not supposed to be used to punish speech. Now, all the way back to the beginning of the country, you know, when, the, when uh, one party lost, they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, that were considered so morally offensive to our founding generation that they were ultimately all thrown out. Uh, because they were then misused and abused for politically weaponized purposes. They were then happened again in World War I. But for the most part, that had been a dead letter law. And now they're bringing it back and they're using the January 6th cases to bring it back. And they're not only doing that, they're redefining obstruction to include anything that could just interfere with Congress. Uh, it's like, okay, well, what's the limit? So if I go out and out in the court of public opinion and lobby for legislation or spend money to get legislation defeated uh, or oppose it, uh, are they gonna start calling that obstruction? Because they're not real clear by what they mean are the limits to their definition of obstruction. That's gonna ultimately have to be decided by the US Supreme Court. Hopefully, if they take up the case, the DC Circuit can't make up its mind on what it means. Uh, I always love a court decision where the one judge judge says it's clear what it means so we don't even have to look at its history and a dissenting judge completely disagrees on what it means. So how is an ordinary person supposed to know what it means if a federal judge doesn't even know what it means uh, is an example of how bad those laws are. They're doing the same with Trump. It isn't just about going after Trump in Manhattan. They're trying to redefine the election laws to criminalize any effort of you spending money to influence an election period. If you look at what they're saying, they're saying even though no money was spent by the campaign, no money was given to the campaign, uh, there's not even a direct nexus to the campaign, that somehow it was a campaign violation for money to be spent uh, for uh, Stormy Daniels to receive a paycheck for her uh, blackmail extortion scheme against the president. Uh, it's you know, extraordinary itself that a victim is actually being prosecuted for what they were the victim of, but putting that aside, look at the ramifications. The ramifications are similar to what Mueller's people, and Weissman in particular, was trying to develop against Donald Trump Jr., where he was saying merely meeting with someone had something of value, and that something of value wasn't disclosed, and that something of value could impact an election. Well, that could cover every single thing, every activity everybody does. Everybody does something at some point that could influence an election. And if, and if, if that has to be disclosed, and if it isn't, it's now a federal election felony, then you can imagine what they could do to put everybody in prison all across the country. 
So uh, the dangers are not just who is being prosecuted and how they're being prosecuted. It's the legal basis they're pursuing because they're intending to go after everyone. And once again, as is the case with January 6th defendants, uh, the Constitution provides the, an uh, provides the answer. We just have to honor it. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm not asking you for an endorsement, but as far as draining the swamp and getting rid of the FBI and everything else associated with that, would um, Trump have an edge coming in that he's been around the track before and uh, already up to speed? Or, or is the Republican political machine able to get the advisors in, no matter who, uh, who's elected, to be able to get, get some prosecutions going and, and get some firings going to drain the swamp? I think that uh, Trump, I think, recognizes better than he did before uh, you know, the, the, with Trump, but his, his virtue is his vice and his vice is his virtue. So uh, a lot of times it's great he's as stubborn as he is. Not always. Uh, a lot of times it's great he's as competitive as he is. Again, not always. Uh, depends on where that, uh, that, that, that rhetoric is being directed at as to whether or not it's always a net positive or not. I think he recognizes by what he went through in his first term, much like uh, President John Kennedy bef uh, before his assassination. Uh, the, I mean, President Kennedy put in people like Curtis LeMay and put in a lot of people who ultimately were organizing against him. And the, I think Trump went in believing sincerely and idealistically in the system. He believed in the FBI, he believed in the Department of Justice, he believed in the, uh, in the military, he believed in the national security apparatus. He thought, look, they're just misguided. And if I can talk to these leaders, they can understand, hey, there's a more sensible path here. We can have sensible trade policy with China that doesn't bankrupt and hollow out the working class in the Rust Belt. Uh, we can have a policy that protects Taiwan without escalation to military conflict. We can see about getting a peace deal with North Korea uh, to try to restore some uh, hope to that country and that continent. Uh, we can do something with Russia that balances out, that converts an adversary into an ally. Uh, we don't have to be the EU's whipping boy. We don't have to be uh, NATO's uh, cheap, chief champion in a post-Cold War era. We, and he just thought this was common sense and that he could negotiate with everybody. Uh, he had no understanding of the scale and the scope of what was coming for him. And then there were people around, as you note, around him and close to him that did not have his best interest at heart. The few that did, like General Flynn, were targeted from the get-go, and then they used Flynn's list to remove everybody that else that could be in there. Now, there, at, towards the end, uh, several of the people that I was uh, close to were, were really on the right track and were putting together a right team and understood the right personnel to put together, people like Stephen Miller and others. And those are people that are ready and willing and able to help them in a, in a new term. Um, I sometimes get asked who would be more effective against the deep state, whether it be Donald Trump or Robert Kennedy. And I've told people that uh, if, if, I, if we end up in an election choice between Donald Trump and Robert Kennedy, the big winner is America. Uh, because the, uh, and the big loser is the deep state apparatus. Indeed, I'm sure some of those people that were the saboteurs of President Trump and of our constitutional democracy would be checking out which countries don't have extradition if that's the two nominees that we have. So uh, we'll see. But uh, I think the president will be much better around, second time around. At least I'm hopeful of that. Um, the, you know, we'll see. I think that uh, 
I, I think there's wisdom in, in, in not necessarily, I think certain people that are looking at challenging him, I think there would probably be a better time and place than now for that. Uh, but we'll see how all that translates. The, uh, but I think that at a minimum, he will be much better prepped and prepared this time around than was before. And what I'm, and again, just Robert Kennedy running in, in the Democratic primary is he's the best candidate since his father on the Democratic side of the aisle. And so uh, at least we're seeing these issues develop in the court of public opinion. I mean, if you would have said 10 years ago, leading members of the Republican Party would be saying it's time to rethink the Federal Bureau of Investigation, nobody would have believed you, right? That, oh, that sounds like some old lefty peacenik Democratic thing. Um, and instead, it's many people on the right. It's Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's Matt Gates, it's Thomas Massey, it's a, it's a lot of people on the Republican, it's uh, Senator J.D. Vance from Ohio. Uh, it's these folks who recognize we have institutional problems. And it's simple. We've gone, gone away from constitutional government and governance. And we need to return to it. And if we return to it, we can restore our country and restore our government to its roots and in the process, take care of most of these problems. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Barnes, for being here. I saw you at uh, the previous Hillsdale conference. I have to say, uh, it's all gotten so much worse. But anyway, and I agree with you about uh, Robert Kennedy. I, I'd love to see him as VP. Anyway, um, you preempted my question about Trump, so I'll just move on to what you were just mentioning about our law schools and, and what is the prognosis for our generation of new attorneys? Um, is the Constitution going to have any relevance? Thank you. There's no, I mean, you look at what's happening at Fox and it looks like all the evidence is evidence of bad corporate lawyering that somebody is giving, I mean, take a company like Dominion. Now, I was one of those that said, was trying to warn everybody that, uh, you know, every great crime needs a great patsy, and they wanted people to blame Dominion, and I said, Dominion's kind of the patsy for this one. Uh, they earned it the old-fashioned way. They stole it the old-fashioned way, is how that election went, uh, by getting people who weren't qualified to vote to vote, by getting ballots in through the mail, the 2,000 mules, et cetera, uh, that weren't constitutionally qualified because it wasn't consistent to the state legislative rules. And then they did the count and canvassing, for example, not doing meaningful signature match checks anywhere in the country. It's what I told the president at the time. I said, you'll know whether they believe they stole the election by whether they give you signature match checks. Barack Obama got elected his, to his first office. How? By using signature match checks to get rid of his opponents. Um, and so they know that power of that better than anybody. And my view was, is if there was a bunch of bogus ballots, the signatures wouldn't match. Now, I didn't realize it was as bad as Kerry Lake later found out, where the signature was like literally a straight line. I mean, these people didn't even try to fake the signature. Um, but there's a reason why they didn't give the president any signature match check anywhere in the country. Uh, some people ask me now, like, what's the best evidence? Somebody that's skeptical of what happened in the 20, uh, or skeptical of the critics of the 2020 election. And they say, give, you know, well, what's the best evidence that there was something wrong with the election? It's like, just do a signature match check anywhere in America. Do it at a single precinct in a single county in a single state. And you're going to find more signatures that don't match in the margin of victory in these closed states. Um, and so... That background of what took place with the president, I think part of like a lot of the reasons why we ran into trouble in Georgia was we go down there and his own lawyers at the time were actually the lawyers for the Secretary of State uh, behind the scenes. 
So they had no interest in exposing all the problems that, the, uh, that Ratberger, the Georgia Secretary of State, had exposed uh, or was part of. The, I think the same is true with Fox. A Dominion, a company that's worth $50 million, according to Wall Street 2018, gets a $787 million check. How? It's like, even if you believed that everything Fox said was mistaken, and for that you have to ignore the fact that two-thirds of what Fox reported was actually critical of Dominion theory. Tucker was actually very critical of Sidney Powell, very critical of the Dominion theory, said other places were the better places to go. Uh, so in uh, there was really a fair reporting privilege that the Delaware court ignored because now we're seeing our courts overtly, openly, politically weaponized in a way to target certain people, a bunch of companies located in Delaware thinking they were corporate friendly places where your board had a lot of liberty and freedom to operate. If you have any clients, customers, or yourself in a business that's in Delaware, get out. Because what's happening is the Delaware courts are now politically weaponizing their legal authority to completely cut through all the protections under Delaware law that are supposed to exist, just as they did to Fox in the libel context. And they were also doing to Fox in shareholder derivative suits that had, were already being filed in Delaware related to the Dominion case. But under what scenario does Dominion get $787 million, more than 15 times its entire value just two years prior to 2020? Uh, that's these big corporate law firms that are representing Fox. My guess is probably every single one of those lawyers, or at least most of them, the leading ones, are opposed to Trump and in many cases may be opposed to aspects of Fox and are giving them bad legal advice. Corporate lawyers did it all throughout. I mean, I'm going to be looking at ways to bring claims against the lawyers who gave bad advice to businesses about vaccine mandates. Told them, don't worry, you can't be sued, nothing bad will happen. So the problem in our legal academy is two things. One, almost everybody comes from a privileged background. You don't have people with diverse life experience. Not just a lack of diverse ideology, you don't have people with diverse life experience. You don't have people that come up in you know, small businesses, from farms, from blue-collar backgrounds, from independents, from small towns, from conservatively, conservative cultural areas, from religious schools, from home schools. Instead, they're all overwhelmingly second, third, fourth generation, upper middle class professionals from upper middle class suburbs who have lived the same way, think the same way, believe the same way. And what's happening is they are dominating, like one of the biggest problems I run into courts is the clerks. The clerks are the ones that are uh, very hostile. I represented Brooke Jackson against Pfizer and the biggest uh, federal uh, claim, key TAM claim concerning the vaccines. The president demanded as part of Operation Warp Speed, they deliver a safe, effective vaccine for the prevention of COVID-19. It says that over six times in the contract, what they delivered wasn't safe, wasn't effective, wasn't even a vaccine, and didn't prevent COVID-19. Uh, Brooke Jackson had the boldness and the bravery to step forward and disclose it. She was someone that's been in the clinical trial world for almost 20 years. She believes in pharmaceuticals. She believes in medicine. She believes in vaccines. And she saw more violations of basic safety and efficacy me methods and metrics for her clinical trials than she'd seen. She saw it more in one clinical trial uh, in in over a two-week time period than she had seen in 19 years combined leading up to it. She comes forward, discloses it. Why didn't we find out about it? Because Bill Barr's uh, Department of Justice decided to suppress it to the world. They decided to keep the investigation secret. 
Uh, they decided to not disclose it for more than a year. They lied to her and told her they were really investigating it and doing a deep dive and they were just around to stopping it. And then when she realized they were lying, she reached out uh, to me, we got involved. Uh, she ultimately went public with the underlying in, uh, facts, which you're legally entitled to. You, during the, while a case is sealed in the KTAM case, you can't disclose the existence of the case, but you can disclose the underlying facts concerning the case because the goal of that seal is solely to help investigate the defendant, not to help the defendant stay immune from public scrutiny. And um, the net effect was that the, the court coming, and I think the clerks in particular in the court, the court seemed very willing to allow our case to go forward. Suddenly we get a ruling that looks very different than what the court said at the hearing in the proceeding. And it read like the clerk wrote, a clerk wrote large parts of the opinion. I don't know whether that's true. I think the judge is a nice guy and a sincere guy. Uh, he just came to the conclusion for whatever reason that we can't take on Big Pharma like so many other federal judges have sadly done in this arena of the vaccine context especially. That, uh, but I think it broadly reflects that I, when I walk into any courtroom, I don't anticipate any of the clerks being an ally. I can pretty much bank that about 90 to 95% of the time, they're uh, Trump-hating, uh, even if they're a quote-unquote Republican, uh, they're not a uh, Trump Republican. And most of the time, they're, not, they're, they're liberal Democrats. I keep trying to explain to my Republican friends that uh, the reason why there's problems in the suburbs is because the replacement of the millennial, replacing the silent generation with the millennial generation has to probably be no offense to millennials, one of the worst generational downgrades in American history. Uh, but on cultural and political values, you know, they buy into the Instagram world of, 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 uh, of Hollywood world of wokeism for the most part. Uh, they, too many of them do. And that's who we're getting out of our law schools. We're getting people, and they also believe in weaponizing the law. They don't believe in the rule of law. They don't believe in the principle of law. They don't believe in the principle of precedent. They believe in weaponizing their power to advance their cause. I keep trying to tell folks uh, that, uh, saying, man, these don't seem like 1960s Kennedy's, Kennedy liberals. Uh, and it's like, well, of course not. Uh, these are people that are 1930s uh, hardcore leftists that were the kind the Kennedys actually fought against. Uh, these are the uh, folks that are the statist at core. They believe in ends justify the means. They believe anything around them is something to be used for power. So we were discussing at lunch, Dinesh D'Souza's point that these are folks that are operating in the gutter with gutter rules. And as long as we only operate by queen of, you know, uh, the old queen's rules for how you, uh, how you box, uh, then we're going to be at a, a dis at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, when we don't use prosecutorial power at our local level or political power at our local level to counteract what they're doing, then that gives them an edge because they know that in advance. They know they can do something we can't respond with. And there's a balance there. We can continue to use our constitutional power, and Constitution is the source of that power, without forfeiting that power. Uh, but we need m many better law students and law graduates. And it's why what Hillsdale is doing is critical. And this is almost two centuries of noble history of fighting the right and righteous cause against the grain. Hillsdale proved that better than anybody during, the, uh, during COVID when a lot of friends and allies went and hid, sadly. Uh, Hillsdale was right at the front uh, standing up for what was right and righteous like it did when at the time of its founding. And we need more of it because what our law schools are producing are people and students who don't understand the values that Hillsdale has instilled so well. Thank you, everybody.